0: Welcome to the P.A. Books Podcast. P.A. Books is a production of PCN,
1: the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
0: This is P.A. Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This
1: week, author George Anastasia discusses his book, The Goodfella Tapes, the true story of how the FBI recorded a mob war and brought down a Mafia Don.
0: George Anastasia, author of The Goodfella Tapes, when did you first get interested in organized crime?
1: I was assigned by the Inquirer uh, to cover Atlantic City back in 1976, which was the year of the casino gambling referendum in New Jersey. and in. One of the issues, part of that whole political debate was, would legalized gambling bring organized crime to the city? In fact, organized crime already was in the city, but I started writing about the mob in conjunction with Atlantic City's redevelopment and the casino gambling issue, and just kind of segued from that into doing more and more organized crime stuff. And then in 1980, Angelo Bruno was killed, the the longtime boss of Philadelphia, and that kind of sent everything careening out of control, and I've been writing about it almost full time since then.
0: When you talk about the mob and organized crime, hmm. exactly what are you talking about?
1: Well, you know, the mob is kind of a generic term, and you can put a lot of different organizations underneath it, but primarily what I write about is the American Cosa Nostra. Uh, the Cosa Nostra is different from the Mafia. The Mafia is a Sicilian organized crime organization. In America, the kind of the, the brother organization is Cosa Nostra. And that's primarily what I write about, although I have have written some stuff about Russian organized crime, Asian organized crime, and, and even some white collar crime. but it, Primarily, I focus on uh, the Cosa Nostra and the Philadelphia family.
0: What is the Cosa Nostra?
1: It, Cosa Nostra means our thing, and it's, it's, the, it's the ethnic Italian-American, Sicilian-American uh, underworld, and it's a group of families uh, spread across most of the major cities in the United States, uh, 24 or 26 families, depending on who you're talking to. Philadelphia has one family. That family is based in Philadelphia, but extends into southern New Jersey, uh, up into northern New Jersey and even into other areas of Pennsylvania. Uh, the, other, the closest Pennsylvania family is in Wilkesboro, there's another family in Pittsburgh. There are five families in New York, Cleveland, Boston, Chicago, all over the country.
0: And what kind of activities are they involved in?
1: Well, I mean, for years and years and years, the, the uh, gambling is the wheel around which it all revolves. I mean, gambling's generated most of the income, and, and with gambling comes loan sharking, and if you got a guy, I mean, I've talked to these guys who say, if you got good shark money, you got money out on the streets, you're set. Um, what's happened is, in, in, in I, I guess in recent times, is going for the quick bucks, going for the fast money, they've gotten more violent, uh, less circumspect, and have branched out into narcotics. Uh, you know, there's always supposedly been a prohibition about the mob not getting involved in narcotics, but there have been guys who have always seen that the way to make money quickly is to get involved with drugs, and drugs brings a lot more law enforcement attention usually brings violence and and that's part of the reason for I, I guess the demise of the American uh, mafia the Cosa Nostra over the last 10, 15 years. Demise Demise yeah yeah I think I think you can make an argument that the mob uh, today in the 1990s is a shell of what it was in the, in the 50s and 60s uh, and there's a lot of different reasons for that and part of it is uh, the involvement with narcotics part of it is, You know, I don't like to to get too sociological about it, but part of it is second and third generation Italian-Americans don't make good mafiosos. The best and the brightest don't become gangsters anymore. There's a defense attorney who says they're scraping the bottom of the gene pool. I mean, guys who can do other things now have the opportunity to do other things, and consequently what you're left with are the guys who hang out on the corners. You can make an argument that a guy like Carlo Gambino, who headed the Gambino family in New York in the 40s and 50s, and Angelo Bruno, who was the boss in Philadelphia from 59 to 80. Those kind of guys, in another time, another place, could have been the CEO of a company. They, they were that astute, uh, that savvy in terms of the business dealings. And now the second and third generation, the, the people from that group, that ethnic group, who are that astute and that savvy have gone to college, they got law degrees, they're doctors or whatever. And so what you're left with are the guys who would have been na- uh, knee breakers for Bruno are now in positions of power in the organization. Uh, a guy like Nicky Scarfo, who was the boss in Philadelphia. A guy like John Gotti, who was the boss in New York. It's no coincidence that their their tenure as bosses lasted four or five years. was very violent, and that they're both serving life prison terms. It's, it's uh, like I said, the best and the brightest are not gangsters anymore.
0: How much of what they're doing now is legitimate, and how much is illegitimate? How much legal Well, I, there's
1: always overlap. I mean, a lot of these guys have legitimate businesses, whether it's a, a restaurant, a bar, a construction company. And... Uh, there's, I mean, there, there have been so many mob informants in the past 10, 15 years that I think everyone's got a pretty clear, anyone who's, who's interested, whether it's law enforcement or the media that's interested, has gotten a pretty clear picture of the way they operate. And back in the late 1980s, a guy named Tommy DelGiorno became a, a cooperating witness. He was a made guy in Philadelphia. He used to own a restaurant couple of restaurants and bars in South Philadelphia, and he said, you know, you don't necessarily go into business to make money, you go into business to hide money. I mean, he had all of this illegitimate income coming in, and he would run it through his restaurant, and as a result, he was able to use it and spend it. Uh, you know, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, God bless them, they're now defunct, unfortunately, they did a study one time of one, uh, one of Tommy Dell's restaurants, and his profits outweighed his receipts because he was running all kinds of other, other money through the restaurant. That's what they do. So they're in a lot of different things. And as I said, gambling is the wheel around which it all spins. And and gambling is a, is a safe operation. I mean, nobody really cares about gambling. Uh, eh?
0: Legal gambling or illegal no illegal
1: gambling? bookmaking, sports betting. But you know, and, and people say, well, the state runs a lottery. What's the difference? And and you know, philosophically, <coughs> you can make that argument. It's a safe business and it's a good business, especially uh, sports betting, where there are a lot of people who are, are sports fanatics and they want to. Uh, you know, get something down on a game or whatever. So they make a lot of money from that. Uh, they always have. Uh, there are guys involved in drugs. There are guys involved in labor racketeering. There are guys involved in, in just out-and-out extortion. You know, it varies from family to family, place to place. In New York, they've controlled for a long time the the fish market, the convention center, uh, a lot of the construction industries. Rudy Giuliani's gotten. Uh, gotten kind of a handle on that, and it's, it's not as pervasive. But these guys go where the money is, and they'll go wherever they can to make money. And it's kind of you push and you probe, and you feel resistance, you back away, you go and do something else. They're entrepreneurs.
0: What do you mean they control it?
1: Well, I mean, for example, in Atlantic City, at, at, at the dawn of the casino gambling era in 1978, when the first casino opened, the mob could not get inside the counting rooms and control the casino like they did at the early days of Vegas. But they controlled the bartender's union, Local 54. This has all been documented. They controlled it by having the officers in that union answer to them, either through intimidation or through long-time connections. And consequently, they were able to benefit from the presence of casino gambling. They were able to put people in positions of power in the bartender's union. And so they had eyes and ears inside every casino. They were able to finagle contracts for who's going to sell bread to the casinos or who's going to sell the meat or who's going to take the trash, those kind of things. You're know, you on the fringes and you benefit from the presence. And and another thing, using casino gambling as an example, if you remember early on, um, well still today, sports betting is illegal. But if a high roller comes into town, I mean, think of the irony of this. The the different casinos have a, a big spread on Super Bowl Sunday and they're bringing these high rollers in from all over the East Coast and they're going to have the game up on a big screen TV, and they want these guys to come in and gamble at the casinos, and they give them free food and drinks and whatever. Well, these guys are big time gamblers. They're coming in to watch a football game. You think they're not going to have a bet on the football game? But you can't place a bet in a casino. But the mob's got a bookmaker in every casino, and if you need action and you want action, there's a bartender or a bellhop who can tell you where you got to go to get your bet down on the, on the football game. Same thing with boxing. You know, if you want to bet on boxing, you can't. It's illegal, but you can. That's the way the mob benefits from all this stuff, and that's why I say that you know they go wherever the money is. You
0: mentioned Angelo Bruno. Can you yeah. trace a little bit of the history of the Philadelphia mob, and did it start with Bruno?
1: No, they, I mean the, the mob in Philadelphia probably goes back to the twenties and thirties, uh, and, and there are some historians who have documented the, you know the different heads of the families. Uh, Bruno came became the boss in 1959 after that famous meeting in Apple Lake, in New York, where the all the mobsters were meeting and, and it was discovered by the New York State Police. Uh, the boss at that time, after that meeting, hightailed it back to Italy. Uh, and Bruno was, might have been a, a, a capo at that point, and he became the boss of the family. What's a capo? Capo is a, a captain, capo regime, it means the boss of a regime, a boss, or a capo de shima, a boss of ten. It's, it's, there's the boss, there's the underboss, and then there's capos, and then there's soldiers. And over on the side is the counselor or consigliere. That's kind of the, the formal structure of the, of the American Mafia families. Bruno was in a position of authority, but not the boss. When his boss left, he took over the family. That was in about 59.
0: How does somebody get to be boss?
1: Well, you know, I mean, first got to be a made guy. First got to be involved. These guys, it's, there's a career track in all of this if you want to go that route. I mean, you become an associate, you do things, you become a made member, formally initiated into the family. And then uh, the soldiers... Uh, uh, either pick or have meetings in which somebody's designated as a capo. The, the boss is usually uh, uh, selected based on his, his involvement in the organization, based on his connections. In, in Philadelphia, um, Bruno became the boss, I think in part because he had strong ties to the Gambino crime family in, uh, in New York and he was a close personal friend of Carlo Gambino's. But it's like any, uh, in a lot of ways, it's like any other, other company or industry. You know, you work your way up. You don't just walk in and say, I'm going to be the boss. You got to prove yourself. You got to do the things that you have to do, and over a period of time, uh, you know, in the in the fifties, over a period of time, the best and the brightest would rise to the top. Now it's uh, a little more loosely organized, but it's the same kind of thing. I mean, you, you know, you put in your time, you do your work, and and uh, you get promoted.
0: Who is it who actually votes and says, "Okay, you're the boss now"?
1: Well, you know, it, it's it. I think it varies from family to family, but a lot of times, if if, if a boss, for example, dies. Uh, natural causes. There's an underboss. The assumption is he's going to become the boss. But there'll be a meeting of the, of the capos of the organization. And in New York, I mean in Philadelphia with the families at best 50 members, right now there might only be 30 members, you maybe have two, two or three capos. In New York we've got a family of 200, 300 members. You're going to have a dozen, two dozen capos. And they're kind of the, the hierarchy. And if a boss dies they're going to sit down and say, you know, you know who's, who's in line? Usually it would be the underboss. In some cases, that doesn't happen. If a bo- boss dies violently, uh, in New York, uh, uh, Paul Castellano was killed by John Gotti. John Gotti became the boss. That was almost a kind of a an overthrow, you know, and a, and a power grab. And that's 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 more common now. And it's I think it's indicative of how destabilized these organizations are. You know, they're not as organized as they used to be, and um, that all helps and benefits prosecutors, helps and benefits investigators. The less organized they are the easier it is to build cases. And that's what's happened, I think, in the past 10 years.
0: What kind of boss was Angelo Bruno?
1: Angelo Bruno was, uh, you know, and again, in terms of we're talking about gangsters here. I mean, these are not nice people, but Angelo Bruno was a good boss. Um, Angelo Bruno believed in making money, not making headlines. Uh, People got killed during uh, Angelo Bruno's era, but you didn't find them lying in a gutter or in the trunk of a car. They just disappeared. You know, and it's, it's a different kind of, of style. I mean, a lot of people's frame of reference is movies, and if you want to use movies as a frame of reference, Angelo Bruno's years were The Godfather, Nicky Scarfo was Goodfellas, and and John Stanford was kind of pulp fiction. It was just totally out of control, a a dark comedy with a a lot of violence, but very little organization. I mean, the stuff they did was just just unheard of.
0: How did Angelo Bruno make his money? Well, I mean,
1: primarily, I mean, he started out as a gambler and a bookmaker and a loan shark, and, and by the time he was killed, I mean, it, he had real estate holdings, he had hidden interest in businesses, he supposedly had an interest in a casino in London, uh, a junket company that, that flew gamblers over to London. Uh, you know, he was, as I said, an entrepreneur, and he, and he diversified, and he le- legitimized a lot of his money. And his son wasn't a gangster. His son was a legitimate businessman. Uh, Carlo Gambino's sons weren't gangsters. You know, it's, it's those guys saw the benefit of, this is what I got to do, I'm going to do it, but my family, not my mob family, but my family is going to have a better life. I don't think that's the case now. I mean, John Gotti was boasting uh, at a couple meetings that his son was going to become a made member. Nicky Scarfo's son almost was killed because he got involved in the organization. It's it's kind of a different attitude.
0: Where did Angelo Bruno live?
1: Angelo Bruno lived in a a row home in South Philadelphia, you know, 10th and Snyder.
0: And he had Uh, neighbors who were not? Of the no, or? I
1: mean he was. a I mean you've talked to them; they loved him down there. And he and he drove around in a, in a Chevy and and bought suits off the rack, and uh, you know and and his job was his legitimate job was he was a, a commission salesman for a vending company, you know cigarettes and candies and uh, it wasn't coincidental that once casino gambling passed in Atlantic City, that vending company was doing all the work down there. I mean Bruno was a real good salesman if you if you you know and he got a commission from that and had a legitimate income from that.
0: Did he ever go to jail for anything?
1: He went to jail for maybe two, two and a half years for contempt when he refused to testify before New Jersey State Commission of Investigation. You know, if they, they subpoena you, they bring you in. If you refuse to answer questions, they can cite you for contempt. He might have done 18 months, uh, maybe a year, maybe two years. But that, as far as I can tell, is the only time Bruno was ever in jail. He was arrested a few times for gambling and bookmaking, but never did any serious time. And, and never had any serious legal problems, although he was the target of all kinds of investigations. And I think part of it was the times, part of it was the way he operated. In his wake, you got guys going out there shooting each other, creates a lot more pressure on law enforcement, and and it bothers people. You know, people by and large have the attitude, you know, they don't bother me, I don't bother them, you know, they only kill each other, leave them alone, and, and they're not gonna hurt us. But in post-Bruno, there were gunfights and you know, People were walking into restaurants and shooting other people, and, and, and that upsets the public, rightly so. And that coupled with this whole attitude of this kind of violence-in-your-face arrogance, I mean, law enforcement decided enough was enough, and they set up a task force in Philadelphia, and they went after the Scarfo family, and that kind of that same task force, different individuals, has been in place ever since, and Scarfo was a boss for, Bruno lasted for 21 years, Scarfo lasted for six years, he's doing consecutive 14 and 55 year terms now. Stanford lasted for four years and he's doing five life terms. So you, you can see that you know, the prosecutions have gotten stronger, the cases have gotten better and the tenure of the mob bosses has gotten shorter. I don't know why anyone would want to be a mob boss now, given w- what happens. You either end up dead or in jail.
0: Uh, Angelo Bruno was killed
1: when? Nin- March of 1980.
0: Was that a surprise?
1: Yeah. Uh, although in retrospect, you look at what was going on and, and you, you understand the reasons for it. You say, well, we should have seen this coming. Bruno was uh, basically told his organization that he didn't want them to get involved in drugs. And Bruno also let a lot of different organizations from New York come down into Atlantic City. And I think there were people within his family who decided Atlantic City had always been under the umbrella of Philadelphia. We shouldn't be giving up these opportunities. That coupled with the prohibition on dealing drugs, coupled with the fact that Bruno was not letting his organization get involved in drugs, but everybody within his organization knew that Bruno was allowing some Sicilian Mafia figures who had set up a restaurant in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, to operate within his geographic domain, and the suspicion was they were kicking back to him, and they were heavily involved in what became the pizza connection. So there were some people who thought Bruno was a hypocrite, you know, we can't get involved in drugs, but you're taking money from these guys over here and everybody knows they're dealing in drugs. So there were a lot of different things going on at that time, and I think, for all of those reasons, Bruno's consigliere, a- Antonio Tony Bananas Caponegro, decided that you know he wanted to, to whack Bruno. Caponegro went to New York, thought he had approval to do it. Uh, Bruno was killed, and then four or five months later, Caponegro and a couple other people ended up dead. It was like a, I think it was a double cross. Some some of the leaders in New York wanted to create a situation where they could fill a power vacuum and really manipulate things from behind the scenes, and that's that's why Bruno was killed, and that's why those who killed him were killed.
0: What's the pizza connection?
1: There were a group of uh, Sicilian mafia figures, Giuseppe and Rosario Gambino, who opened up a restaurant in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, called Valentino's. This is back in 1978, 1979, 1980. Uh, Bruno welcomed them to the area. I mean, he had them over for Easter dinner, and, and you know they knew him, he knew them. And they were involved in the, in the uh, Sicilian heroin operation, which was part of the pizza connection. Uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons Bruno was killed, the, the the hypocrisy and all of that. There were guys in his organization that wanted to deal drugs. He was saying, no, 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 we don't want to do that. On the other hand, they're, they're thinking he's taking money from these other guys. You know, it's, there's a lot of treachery. There's a lot of jealousy. There's a It's all about making money and having power.
0: Is there a lot of contact between the Sicilian Organized crime, Sicilian mob, and the American mob.
1: For a long time, I, th- I think they were they operated on separate planes. I think with John Staffa, there was the potential for a major overlap. I mean, Stanford was born in Sicily, came to this country as a as a young man, had a lot of connections outside of Palermo, had family members in Sicily who were made members of the mob, and I can remember when he. When he became boss in 1990, 1991, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission did a report where, in essence, they said, you know, the American Mafia has been in demise and is is, is disorganized, there's been all these prosecutions, and Stafford may epitomize the way that the mob is going to put itself back together because he's got a foot in both camps. He's got connections in Sicily and he's based here in America, and maybe they're going to go back to the old ways, you know, make money, not make make headlines, the code of silence, all of those things had been kind of shattered. In the post-Bruno era in Philadelphia, and he also in New York, and I remember writing those stories, saying, "Yeah, it looks like this is the way it's going to be." Now they're going to go back to the old ways. In fact, uh, and I think that's what this this book demonstrates. Stanfa had the Sicilian accent and the Sicilian attitude, but he was a lot more like Nicky Scarfo than he was Angelo Bruno. He just hid it behind this veneer. You know, we thought, "Oh, you know, this speaks this broken English. He's from Sicily." But he was as much a thug, and probably as prone to violence. And as unsophisticated as Scarfo was. And that's the reason his family, yeah, his tenure as boss did not last very long.
0: Is it, do I remember it right that John Stanford was the driver when Angelo Bruno right. was killed?
1: Stanford was, at that point, Stanford was, had been in Philadelphia for several years. He had come down from New York with a, a letter of introduction from Carlo Gambino. And he came to, to Philadelphia. And Bruno welcomed him here. And law enforcement thought Stanford was kind of a hanger on, kind of an associate. Uh, in fact, he was already, I think, a made member of the family by, by, by the time Bruno was killed. But on the night that, that Bruno died, he had had dinner at Cousins Little Italy, a restaurant in South Philadelphia, and his driver, for whatever reason, wasn't around. Something had happened, and someone said, oh, John will drive you home. And there's at least one theory that this was all part of the murder conspiracy. Stanford drove Bruno home that night. They're sitting in front of Bruno's house around 10th and Snyder. It's raining a little bit. Bruno's smoking a cigarette. And depending on whose version, uh, John Stanford pushes the remote control and lowers the window next to Bruno. Bruno's sitting in the passenger side. A guy comes out of the shadows, pulls a shotgun out from underneath his raincoat and, and blows a hole in the back of Bruno's head. Stanford gets hit with some pellets. He's go- He goes to the hospital. But four or five days later, they, the feds track Stanford, meeting with two of the conspirators in Philadelphia, driving up to New York, having meetings up there, and he becomes a suspect. Yeah, and, and it con- kind of comes full circle. Stanford goes away to jail for perjury for lying to a grand jury investigating the Bruno murder. For seven years, he's away while this turmoil occurs in Philadelphia, the Nicky Scarfo era. Scarfo goes away to jail. Stanford comes out of jail f- finishing the perjury charge. Comes back, there's this vacuum. He becomes the boss.
0: Can you track the bosses after Angelo Bruno? It was Philip well, Testa? It
1: was Bruno. It was Phil Testa for a year. Ever Testa's happened? blown up in a bomb outside of his house. Uh, Scarfo becomes the boss in 81. Scarfo's the boss till he's convicted in 1988, 89. Scarfo's cousin, Tony Buck Piccolo, is the acting boss for maybe 12 to 18 months in that interim. And then Stanford comes on the scene and Tony Buck accedes to Stanford. And actually, Tony Buck doesn't want to be the boss. Stanford becomes the boss in around 1990.
0: You refer to Tony Piccolo as a gentleman mobster. Yeah. What do you he mean? He was.
1: Tony Piccolo was very much from that old school. Um, Tony Piccolo was a businessman. Tony Piccolo was very polite, uh, uh, was not arrogant at all. And Tony Piccolo kind of, if you, if you listen to him on the tapes, I mean, he laments what's going on with the mafia in the, in the 1990s. Uh, Tony Piccolo, I think, understood what, if there's any nobility and honor in all of this, and you can make an argument that there is or there isn't, but at least he aspired to that. and And, and his attitude was, you know, this is, this thing of ours is something special. We're involved. You don't make noise. You don't make headlines. You know, you, you, you don't call attention to yourself. You go about your business. And law enforcement has a job to do, and you respect what they're trying to do, and the media has its job to do. You know, And, and, and you treat people uh, like gentlemen. And that's the way Tony Piccolo comported himself. And he was in a construction business and a lot of different businesses over the course of time, and he was a gambler and a bookmaker. And made money and did the things that he did. But But he wasn't the kind of, there wasn't the kind of thuggery and arrogance and violence that his cousin Scarfo brought to the family and that these younger guys brought in the in the Stanford era. You
0: quote John Stanford, in fact you close the book by and quoting John Stanford saying, I'm no hungry for money either because this thing, this thing, it's not for money.
1: What's it for? Well, I mean, in theory, uh, the, uh, that's the irony, that's why I ended that book that way. It, Stanford said the right words, but if you look what he did, it, it's kind of like what John Mitchell said during Watergate, don't listen to what we say, watch what we do. That's the kind of thing it was here with Stanford. He spoke the language about this is sacred, this thing of ours. On, but on the other hand, he was grabbing for money with both fists. You know, and he was treacherous and deceitful and uh, and, and and amazingly violent, uh, disregarded kind of all the rules of engagement. Uh, and so uh, that, that, I found that quote rather ironic. What it's supposedly about, in, in, again, in this noble sense, is, is this brotherhood and you look out for one another and you take care of your family. In fact, it's a treacherous, greedy operation that's involved in, in making money, any way they can make money, grabbing with both fists and taking all they can get from anybody they can get it from. When did John Stanford become boss? About 1990. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't have exact dates because these guys don't publish yearly reports, but it was around 1990. 90, Ninety-one, maybe. Yeah, that's when he came back on the scene. So he had been in prison until then? He had then? been in prison until about 87. And I'm not. after he was released from prison, I think he may have gone to New York for a while and might even, even have gone back to Sicily for a while. I'm not clear on that. But he was back on the scenes in Philadelphia around 89, 90. And by 1990, 91, law enforcement people are starting to say, hey, this guy looks like he's the boss now.
0: Does the Philadelphia mob have a name like the Gambino family or no, the No, you know, Plumbo I mean, family?
1: it's you get into discussions about that, and and I think it's been New York, unique to the New York family that the the bosses from a certain period attached their name to the organization, and, and it stayed that way. The Gambino family, uh, the name comes from Carla Gambino, even though that family was when it was organized, was headed by uh, Albert Anastasia, uh, who has the same name as I. But uh, he was killed, Gambino took it over, and, it, and even though Gambino was gone, the name is still attached to that family. Philadelphia, I mean, it, it was the Bruno family, then it was the Bruno Scarfo family when Scarfo took it over. Now, if you want to keep using hyphenated, it was the, the Bruno, Scarfa, Scarfo, Scarfo, Stanford, uh, Natale family. You know, I mean, so no, it's just the Philadelphia family. It doesn't have one of the, the nomenclature that, that they have out of New York. New York has kept the names, Lucchese, uh, Bonanno, uh, Genovese, and all of the guys; those guys are gone, but the name is still attached to the family.
0: What kind of names and terms do the mobsters use among themselves? I mean, what do they refer to the the family as?
1: Well, you know, the, our thing, Cosa Nostra. Uh, they refer, refer to themselves as good fellows. I mean, that, that's. I mean, that's one of the things about this investigation and this book that I found fascinating is that um, you listen to these guys talking, and there's like two thousand conversations. And they they don't have a clue anybody's listening, and some of the conversations could have been scripted by Mario Puzo or Martin Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola, and you wonder if maybe they've seen the movies too many times, you know. And and it's art imitating life imitating art. Um, and there's a great line in, in and kind of the signature phrase of the investigation where there's a dispute uh, over uh, a trash company, and there's two two individuals that are partners, and the one. Partner has filed a lawsuit against his partner, and they're all connected. And Sapravachi comes down from New York and says, "You know, we can't have this lawsuit because it's going to disclose the hidden interest, and we're making a lot of money here, and it's going to mess everything up." And and the one partner who's been wrong says, "You know, this guy stole millions of dollars from me, and he's a thief, and so you're telling me the thief just gets away with what he's doing?" And Sapravachi says, "You don't understand. Good fellows don't sue good fellows. Good fellows kill good fellows. That's just the way it is." Well, you know, you could hear that in a movie. You could, the setting could be in a movie. And this, but this is real life. And, and that's this guy talking. And not, not a clue that anybody's listening. He's just telling this guy, you know, wise up. This is the way it is. So, you know, I, I get a kick out of that because it's, this is real. I mean, these are these guys. And, and what I try to do with, I've written two other books. And both those books were kind of focused on an individual. The first book was focused on Nick Caramondi, a mob informant who brought down Scarfo. It's called Blood and Honor, and it's basically Caramondi's story of how he got involved in the mob, what he did while he was a mobster, and why he decided to become an informant. And it's his insights and his tale of of you know kind of the rise and fall of Nicky Scarfo. And the second book, Mob Father, was about um, the son and the wife of a gangster and, and their take on how all of this stuff was playing out. You know? So those two books were written from the perspective of, of an individual and, and a certain point of view. This book is more about an investigation. And, and the tapes, I think, make it work. It's not just a book of tapes, but the tapes are kind of the engine that drives the investigation and, and that drive the book. And so you've got these guys and you've got this dialogue, and you don't make it up. You just let them talk. And one of the benefits that I found, I mean I, I covered this for the Inquirer, and I'm writing newspaper stories, one after the other after the other. And invariably, and, and when you're writing a newspaper story, you're limited in, in terms of space as to what you can get in. So you get all these great tapes that are coming out during a trial, and the editor says, well, we've got room for 22 inches. Well, by the time you set up the story, who's on trial, what they're charged with, you get maybe a snippet of two or three tapes. By, by having a book, I was able to just let it run and air it out, and I think it, it does justice to the investigation, and you get a better sense of, of how phenomenal uh, what the feds had going was. I mean, for two years, they had bugs planted in a lawyer's office, Salvatore Vina, in Camden, New Jersey. And mobsters from Philadelphia, from New York, and from Scranton, wilkesboro were coming down and meeting in that office. And the feds were recording it all. And they got it all. And it's phenomenal.
0: And we're, we're about halfway through this, yeah. and we have yeah. barely talked about your book yeah. yet. But I, I want to ask you a couple of other quick questions. First of all, can you refer to the Scranton mob and the Pittsburgh mob? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: this? Well, those? I mean, if you talk to law, I mean, I mean, and again, you got to throw a lot of alleged in here because this is all based on federal and state investigators and law enforcement authorities. Um, the Pittsburgh family was decimated several years ago when Phil Leonetti, who was the underboss in the Scarfo crime family and also Scarfo's nephew, Leonetti became an informant and he testified at trials up and down the East Coast, Hartford, Boston, New York, Newark. Toms River, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. And the Pittsburgh family was decimated by a racketeering case that was based in part on Leonetti's testimony. I don't know what the status of that family is right now. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that they're still in existence and there still are players. Scranton-Wilkesboro um, used to be Ruffa, Russell Buffalino's family. He passed away several years ago. And depending on who you're talking to, there's only four or five, one or two, three or four members still active up there. But one of the members, uh, the, uh, an alleged mobster uh, from that area was, was down meeting with Stanford and according to law enforcement people, it continues to meet with the Philadelphia people. Uh, it's not clear how much influence or how powerful the, the Scranton-Wilkesboro family is anymore and some people even believe it's become a satellite either, either of Philadelphia or of one of the New York families. The Genovese family in New York has always had kind of interest down in that area and uh, I think so have the Lucchese so has the Lucchese organization. So it's not clear how many players there are up there anymore, how active they are, what they do, but I know there are two or three individuals that the feds are always tracking, and they see them come down here into Philadelphia and meet with the, with the Philadelphia guys. So that's the status of those families.
0: What's it like covering the mob?
1: I, I think um, I've always been interested in it, and, and I enjoy writing about it. I think, uh, other th- unlike some other topics, uh, it's colorful. Uh, you get access to guys who, who are interesting to write about. Um, and, and so I've enjoyed it. I mean, I, this is the third book, and maybe maybe I'm about burnt out with that. I mean, three books about the Philadelphia mob may, may be at the, that's the trilogy. That may be enough, and I'm, I am ought to branch into some other stuff. And I am trying to build up some, some expertise on Russian-organized crime and Asian-organized crime, because that may be what we're talking about as we get into the next generation. But, I, you know... When you talk to people involved in the newspaper business, and, and sometimes we kind of get full of ourselves. I mean, in, in the noblest sense, newspaper reporting is about the search for truth. But in reality, what we often have are a lot of facts and an editor saying, when are you going to give me this story? So we write a story based on the facts, and we may not always know what the truth is. You know, and, and I'm cognizant of that. I mean, we, we, we're, we inform and we enlighten and we entertain. Uh, that's what we do. This is not brain surgery. We're not finding a cure for cancer or for AIDS. It's not, you know, it, it, it's, I love what I'm doing, and I have a lot of fun doing what I'm doing, but I don't kid myself about, in the, in the greater scheme of things. You know, it's, I write about the mob. There are some people who are fascinated with that, some people who are very interested in that, some people who could care less. I'm an expert on the Philadelphia mob. Well, that's really great. What, what does that mean in the greater scheme of things? Probably not very much. But for somebody who's interested, yeah, it's, they enjoy that. Just like somebody buys a newspaper because they want to read about a baseball team. Well, other people don't really give a damn about a baseball team, but they're going to buy the newspaper for something else. I mean, I think a newspaper's got to be a smorgasbord of a lot of different things. And the, and the key is not <clears throat> the key is to have a lot of different things, but to prepare your food very well so that it's good. And sometimes we lose sight of that, and we just want to put it all out there. And I'm, 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 that's kind of a... I digress a little bit, but I'm a little concerned about the future of the newspaper business. You can't be all things to all people, you have to be good at what you do. Um, And I say this, you know, I'm good at what I do, I understand this, I've done it for a long time, I know the players, and I'm in a position where I can write with a little bit of authority about all of this. But in the greater scheme of things, what does it mean? It's a lot of fun, I like to write, and it's a story that people seem to enjoy reading. How long have you been working in newspapers? Uh, I've been in newspapers, you know, I graduated from college in 1969. I graduated from Dartmouth College with a degree in French. Uh, And I've been in the newspaper business ever since. I started at a small paper in New Jersey as a sports writer. Uh, Spent five years there. I spent another year at at the Courier Post, which is a medium-sized paper in Jersey. And I went to the Inquirer in 1974. And uh, I've been there ever since. Where did you grow up? I, I was born in South Philadelphia, and I grew up in South Jersey my family's roots go back to South Philadelphia and so I know a lot of if, if I don't know I know of a lot of these people I know these places you know because my relatives are down there so you know I, I think I have an affinity for that and I think it helped me with uh, the, the first book I did this fellow Nick Caramondi who was the informant I wrote about I mean we, we connected fairly well because when he started talking to me about people and places I, I had a frame of reference right away I know he had pitched the book I did to some writers from New York and he wasn't comfortable with them because you know, he had to reinvent the wheel for them, where with me, I, I was on the same page most times. So I've benefited from a lot of that, and, and it's, you know, I mean, it's one of the uh, nice things about the Inquirer is they've let me become an expert, and that helps them and it helps me. You, you know, you can't, you can be a quick study in the newspaper business, go in and do a takeout on a, on a given topic, but if you want to be serious about it, you got to spend some time at it.
0: How well do you get to know these people?
1: Uh, fairly well. I mean, I have... It's, it's only been in the last, I, since I started writing It's it's funny. I mean, once you write a book, all of a sudden, people in TV think you know more than you. I knew as much before I wrote the book as I did after, but I've got a book. Now people on TV say, well, let's talk to that guy. We'll put him on. And so, you know, then more and more people start to know you, more and more people start to talk to you. And, and a funny thing happened. Um, early on, writing about the mob, most of my sources were law enforcement investigators, Court documents, and and lawyers who were involved in these cases, and um, I had a friend who who a co-worker who had grown up. She was a woman who had grown up with some of these guys, and and they would call her and talk to her. You know, who is this guy? What's he writing? And she would say, Well, why don't you talk to him? You know, and so as a result, I had a couple guys started calling me, and it was kind of a you know like a dance we're doing back and forth, back and forth. But at at some point. Uh, a couple times they would say something to me. You know, the cops don't really know what they're talking about. They're saying X, Y, and Z. It's really A, B, and C. And I started, and, and I would check, and some of that stuff would check out. And I do a story saying, well, law enforcement is saying yabba da yabba da yabba. However, at least one or two street sources say da da did it. And then they saw that, and then kind of a light went off. And and like a politician, they realized they can put their spin on a story by talking to me. Now I don't know what their motive is. I mean, a guy like Angelo Bruno wouldn't care what you wrote. But for some reason, and maybe they just want to tweak the cops. Maybe they, you know, maybe they read newspapers more than Bruno did. So I've got guys now who call me and who I can call from time to time. And they, they won't tell me, yes, yeah, so and so killed so and so. But if I say, look, I'm hearing this. You know, what well, can you tell me about that particular incident? They might, on occasion, share something with me. And they might they might share it with me because they don't like that guy, or they might share it with me because, you know, they're trying to to, to put their spin on. Whatever, you know, internal politics. Who who knows? And the upshot of all of this is that now I've got a situation where there are guys on both sides of a story who I can call. And it doesn't mean I'm going to have the truth, but it means I've got a lot more facts to work with. And, and you just p- kind of put it out there. And uh, I think it's better for me. It's better for the reader. It's better for the paper. And it are, makes better stories.
0: Are all the people in this book and all the people we've talked about
1: Catholic? I, I That's... I would ass- I'm making an assumption I think most of them are but only because I think most Italian Americans are Catholic uh, that, that's just an assumption I a lot of them are yeah I don't know that that plays into any of this uh, practicing at all well I mean a lot of these guys are buried from the church you know there's a funeral there's a funeral in the church when they're killed but I don't know I mean you know define practicing Catholic I mean we could have a debate about that I mean it's there are a lot of Catholic cafeteria Catholics out there that they, they, you know I don't know. I mean, uh, some of them are, I think, but that's more uh, a factor of their ethnicity than it is the fact that they're wise guys. Yeah.
0: Uh, you used the term good fella earlier, and what's a wise guy?
1: Wise guy is a good fella. That's two different terms that are, you know, uh, that, when they talk about themselves. And even, uh, But now I think they're ev- even getting away from that because it's become part of the lexicon and part of the movies and stuff, so they just po- kind of poo-poo that as well. I mean, some of these young guys that I'm talking to, they say, what, what mob? What are you talking about, mob? You know, we, we grew up together. We used to hang out on this corner. There's no mob. It's just us. So, What's your book about? The book is about the investigation that brought down John Stanford, and it starts with this wiretapping operation, and it, and it spans kind of 1990 to 1994, and it's the story of the investigation, the story of the people who were the players out there and how it played out, and ultimately it ends with Stanford and 27 others being indicted and of that crew, 24 were either convicted or pled guilty. Three were acquitted. So it was kind of the rise and fall of a mob family. And the the interesting part of it is, while this is all going on, while there's the plotting and the treachery and the shootings, and there's two factions, there's a Stanford organization and there's a group of younger South Philadelphia guys headed by skinny Joey Molino. And while they're at war, Staffa and his guys are going back to this lawyer's office and discussing what's happening out on the streets, so the feds are getting it all on tape.
0: We have Joey Merlino there. Yeah. What are you going to tell me about him?
1: Joey Merlino is the son of Salvatore. He's the one on the left. Yeah, Salvatore Merlino, who was, Salvatore Merlino was, was at one point an underboss for Scarfo. Salvatore Merlino was serving a, a racketeering conviction, 45 years. Uh, Joey is his son. Joey kind of grew up in all of this. Um... There are a lot of people in law enforcement who claim, you know, Joey's just a street punk, Joey's a a thug, uh, you know, he's not going to be around very long. They've been saying that for, I've been hearing it for almost 10 years. Nicky Scarfo wanted Joey Merlino dead, and Scarfo was doing consecutive 14 to 55-year prison terms. Stanford wanted Merlino dead. Stanford's doing five life terms. There were a group of drug dealers in South Philadelphia that wanted Merlino dead. They're either doing prison terms or they're dead, and he's still out there. So I don't think he's the thug and the dumbo the law enforcement have made him out to be. I think he's street smart, and he's a little more sophisticated than we, than we thought. And if, you, if according to law enforcement, you know, he is supposedly running the organization now because the, the current boss, Ralph, the reputed boss, Ralph Natale was arrested last Friday on a parole violation charge, and so he's in jail. So Joey Merlino, who supposedly was the underboss, is now at least the acting boss of the organization. So, I mean, he's and, and he's won the, the war with Stanford. I mean, the feds helped him by indicting Stanford and convicting Stanford, but Merlino and Stanford were at war. Stanford and most of his guys are gone, and Merlino and most of his guys are out there, so they're the victors. Your book is called The Goodfella Tapes. Right. Who made the tapes? The FBI planted those bugs. Where? In Salavina's law office, and from 1991 to 1993, they recorded 2,000 conversations.
0: That's 519 Market
1: Street Five Nineteen Market Street in Camden. Oh, in Camden. Salavina's in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, 2,000 tapes from 1991 to 1993. And, uh, and one of those tapes is where the fellow says, you know, good fellows don't sue good fellows, good fellows kill good fellows. That's where I took the, t- took the title from that and from the fact that the m- movie Goodfellas was very, very successful and people could relate to that. Uh, in addition to those tapes, there were bugs, there were people wearing wires in Philadelphia, Uh, There was uh, audio and video surveillance of a luncheonette down in South Philadelphia where a mob hit took place, they had to hit on tape. You you can see the shadowy gunmen run in, you hear a waitress scream, you hear the bullets, the shots fired, you hear them run and you see them running out of the restaurant and running off screen. Uh, There was some phenomenal uh, surveillance uh, done by the FBI, the Pennsylvania State Police, and the New Jersey State Police in this investigation. And it's all part of the, you know, the book is the story of that investigation, and in the words of the wise guys themselves, because so many of them were picked up on tape.
0: Was it Joey Chang? Joe Chang? <laughs> Joe
1: Changalini, Chan, nicknamed Joey and Chang. And uh, he was the one who was uh, videotaped getting shot? Yeah, he was, he was Stanford's underboss, and he, his brother, Michael Changolini was aligned with Joey Molino, so you had brother against brother. And the father was in there, too? The father was in jail and at least some people believe the father was supporting, the father was a friend of Salvatore Merlino, who was Joey's father, and they were backing the young kids in this dispute with Stanford. That's at least one theory. Um, Stanford, probably the one, one of the intelligent things he did was he made Joey Cangolini his underboss, thinking that he could bridge this gap to the younger guys, From but apparently there was a falling out between Joe Cangolini and Mike Cangolini, and, and they split. And there's even some people who believe Michael Cangolini was involved in the hit on Joe Cangolini. Now he survived that hit. He's, he, you know, he was seriously wounded, but he survived. Uh, but he's, he's not been much of a factor since then. Subsequent to that, Michael Cangolini was killed. So you got one brother wounded, one brother killed on two different sides of this war. Uh, and there's another brother who's out there now, John Cangolini, who's allegedly part of the organization. So this is a family, like the Merlino family, and like the Scarfo family, that it's a second generation being involved in the organization. Uh, The fathers of these guys are away, they were indicted and convicted with Scarfo, and they're out there on the streets, kind of continuing the organization.
0: You were able to listen to all these tapes?
1: I listened to more, I mean, you know, Stanford went on trial in 1995, Stanford and seven co-defendants, and the tapes were a key part of the case. The tapes and the testimony of three or four major informants, in fact, three hitmen became cooperating witnesses. But the feds during the trial played maybe 200 of those tapes uh, and a, at a subsequent, subsequent trial involving five other defendants they played even more tapes. So I say 2,000 conversations, some of the conversations didn't go to criminality and, and weren't part of the, you know, the, the trial, but all of the tapes that were played at the trials, all of the tapes that involved discussions of extortions, murders, shakedowns, uh, arsons, all of that stuff. Uh, obstruction of Justice. They were all played and we got access to all of that. And as I said, I was reporting on a daily basis, writing about it in the paper. You know, and once in a while you can do a bigger story on Sunday, you know, if something good happens during the week you do a takeout. But you, you, even at that it was tough to do justice to how good these tapes were and, and the implications of it all. And I think a book allowed me to do that and put it in some kind of perspective. And that's, that's what I try to do here. And the trials you sat in on, who was on trial? The first trial was John Stanford and seven others. Tony Piccolo, Shotzi Sparaccio, Sergio Battaglia, Frank Martinez, who was the underboss, uh, Ray Esposito, uh, Herbie Keller. There were were eight defendants, and they were all convicted. Charged with what? Racketeering. Racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. But the way the law is written, the federal racketeering law, you charge with racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. And then under the umbrella of racketeering, there's a racketeering act murder. A racketeering act, attempted murder, what, racketeering p- act, extortion. You know, and they, they list them all.
0: What does the word racketeering mean?
1: Racketeering is, is a broad-based term invo- that involves all types of uh, organized crime activity, corrupt organized crime activity. It could be extortion. It could be gambling. It, it could be murder. It could be arson. It could be anything that fits under that umbrella. And, and the way the law is written, I mean, the, you hear a reference to the RICO law. Which was written in, in the, I guess, in the late '70s, but the feds finally figured out how to use it in the '80s. And and what the RICO law did—it's Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. That law basically said to be involved in an enterprise that's engaged in racketeering, to be part of that enterprise, is a crime, and we can attack the enterprise and the players in that enterprise. It's a very powerful law, and as a result, if 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 we're sitting around at a table and we're we're part of this crime family, and there's discussion about seven or eight things that are going to happen, and then two people at that table go out with five other people and commit those crimes, well, because we were at that table, we're as culpable as those folks. You know, it's a big umbrella. We're all part of the enterprise, and, and we all play a part in the enterprise, and when the enterprise commits the murder, we're all culpable for that murder. And that's what's happened with this. And so they're charged for racketeering, but the trial itself involves testimony about murders, extortions, gambling, loan sharking, anything they were involved in, any gambit that they, that, you know, that they ran.
0: How was the FBI able to place this bug in the first place without getting caught?
1: Well, I mean, there are two, I mean, it, it's interesting. They, they, the actual physical ability to place the bug wasn't that difficult if you know Camden, New Jersey. Five o'clock at night, Camden shuts down. There's nobody there. It's very easy to break into a, a, a building. There's not, not going to be anybody walking the streets that's going to see you. And these guys are fairly sophisticated. I mean, the FBI's got a black bag squad. You know, they know how to bur- burglarize places. They break in. They did, it, they did it in New York with John Gotti. So they get in and they put the bug in. The more interesting question to me is, um, and, and I, I, you know, it, it comes up whenever you discuss this, is think about the, the legal and constitutional implications of bugging a lawyer's office. You know, they had to go in front of a judge and say to the judge, look, there are mobsters meeting in this law office. He is a lawyer who represents some of them, but they're not meeting there to talk about their cases or about uh, jurisprudence. They're meeting there to hold mob meetings, and they're using the veneer of lawyer-client privilege to justify that. And then they've got to present that to a judge, and the judge has got to approve the bug. And so they did that, and they bugged Avina's office. Now, he's, he's got a suite of, like, eight or nine rooms. He had three or four law partners. They put a bug in his office, and for almost a month, they got almost nothing. There were guys going in, but they weren't meeting in that specific room, uh, or when they were in that room, they weren't saying anything involving criminality. And the way a a bug works, you go in every 30 days to get approval to renew. And they were coming up on a 30-day deadline, and they got two fantastic conversations involving mobsters from Newark and Philadelphia talking about what was going on within the organization, talking openly about Cosa Nostra, talking about the problems, identifying who was who, who's the boss. And that was at, right at the end of the first 30-day period. And they took those transcripts before of the judge and said, "Here's what's going on." and they got a renewal. And then subsequent to that, the conversations got better and better. And subsequently, they broke in on two more occasions, bugged the conference room, and ultimately bugged, I think, every room in the suite because what was happening was Stanford would show up, and uh, uh, the lawyer would say to him, well, so-and-so's not in today, use his office. And so they would go there, and they would meet there. And over the course of two years, as I said, they recorded 2,000 conversations.
0: And they had to turn the microphones on and off if they By law, they, were you, not you, going to be they
1: call it minimizing uh, if you're listening. And the, the feds had set up a listening post, in the uh, U.S. post office and courthouse, which, which was just a block away from Avina's office, and they had somebody outside surveillance watching who was going in and out. And when he saw somebody of interest go in, he would notify the, the guys in the basement of the, of the post office. They would turn it on and see who they what they would pick up. Now, if the conversation was about, you know, uh, uh, we're going on trial next week and, and here's our strategy, they they got to turn that off. They can't listen to that. Or if the conversation is about how's your wife and kids, you know, did you go to that party, you know, where, so and so's having a, They got to turn that off, and then periodically it would turn back on. In theory, at least. Now you know, you know. In theory, at least, that's what they were doing, and they would turn it back on. And, and so, consequently, sometimes they would come in in the middle of an of a conversation, and and sometimes they would come in, and it would be difficult to determine the frame of reference because they hadn't been listening all along. It's a it's a game, and in, and as I say, in theory, those guys. It's kind of the honor system. They're going to turn that bug off, and they're not going to tape uh, when the discussion has nothing to do with. Uh, what they're investigating.
0: I want to ask you about this guy we're yeah. getting a shot of right now, John Vizi, John
1: and also about the
0: picture. You have uh, pictures
1: like this. How are these pictures taken? There, almost every one of those pictures uh, come from the investigation. They're surveillance photos made by the FBI while they were tracking this, this mob war. And so that, as a result, you see, you know they've got the guys who were the players uh, from both factions. That picture above Stanford is a picture of Joey Molino, Gaten Luchabella, and Mikey Cangolini. Yeah, Mike, Mike Cangolini was killed. Uh, so yeah, they've got, they had an ongoing investigation and, and they were doing a lot of uh, video as well as audio surveillance. We're so we saw a lot of that at the trial. There you go. And who are they in, again? Uh, the top picture is uh, Joey Merlino, Gaten Bello and in black is Michael Cangolini. They're walking down a street in South Philadelphia. Michael Chang uh, Cangolini was killed later on? He was killed later on. Yeah. And Joey killed. Merlino
0: is the one who's the
1: boss now. Right. Uh, Joey Molina was wounded in that same drive-by shooting, and VZ was one of the shooters, the fellow you were pointing out, John Vizi, He was a Stanford hitman.
0: How did you get copies of these surveillance pictures?
1: They were entered as evidence. I mean, all of this stuff became public record once the case went to trial. And once they put it on the public record, anybody can has access to it. So that's, wha- that's how I was able to get the transcripts. I also have some audios. I mean, I have the audios of the tapes as well as the, as the transcripts. It's just a lot faster to read the transcripts than to listen to the audio and you got it there in front of you, and you can make notes and stuff. But the photos also came from the FBI, was part of their investigation. And all of that was shown to the jury.
0: And John Staff is in jail for how long?
1: He was sentenced <clears throat> to five life terms. He was convicted of, of heading a criminal enterprise, racketeering, racketeering conspiracy. Where is he? The last time I checked, he was in Leavenworth. His underboss, Frank Martinez, who was also sentenced to four or five life terms, is in uh, Florence, Colorado, the Alcatraz of the Rockies. That's the new maximum security prison. They spread them all out. They don't put uh, defendants from the same family, by and large, they don't put them in the same prisons. So they scatter them all over. Nicky Scarfo was down in Atlanta. Uh, Some other folks are up in New York. They are all over the place. What
0: is life like for a mob boss in prison? Many have heard how such and such tried to run the mob from jail. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, supposedly Gotti is still trying to run his organization from Marion. Um, You know, I I think a lot of it depends on what what prison. I think in the federal system, it's a lot more difficult. I know when these guys, some of these guys were in uh, either Greaterford or one of the prisons in Philadelphia while they were awaiting trial back in the 80s on a murder case, a state murder case, so they had to stay in a state prison. Uh, There's subsequent testimony from informants that they, you know, they were paying off different prison guards and they were getting access to better foods. Uh, better visits, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot like in that the movie Goodfellas, where you see them, you know, they got their own little wing of the prison and they're cooking, they're cutting the onions and, and cooking good food. Apparently some of that, at least and Eddie testified, some of that was going on when they were in a state prison. I don't think in a federal prison they, they can do that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a lot tougher in a federal institution. Although a lot of them will tell you the actual doing time, it's a lot, you're a lot more comfortable in a federal prison than in a, in a state prison, which is overcrowded and, the the uh, what should I put it the your fellow inmates are not of the class that you would find in a federal prison uh, I, and that's just what some guys tell me I've never been in to to judge that for myself but myself
0: I want to read a quote you have in here you quote uh, Sal Sparaccio yeah and he says in one conversation with Piccola and Avina um, you got to get the public apathy on your side
1: it's classic malaprop I mean what he meant was you don't want to make headlines. You want people content, and they don't hear about you. They don't see people getting killed. You want people to say, "Ah, it's just the mobsters. They only bother each other. They don't bother us." Why are well, you making a big deal about that? And for a long time, that was the attitude. Uh, and I think that's what Sparaccio was speaking to, even though he was, was using the, 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 the phrase improperly. I mean, you want you want an apathetic public. You don't want the public aroused and saying to their to their police chief or to their their city councilman, you know, what's going on here, we got, you know, somebody was killed in that restaurant, I had dinner there two days ago, you know, where uh, there was a shooting on the Schuylkill Expressway, what, what is this all about, you know, you don't want that kind, of, and that kind of thing happened, I mean, there was a, a bizarre, I mean, I've never heard of it anywhere in, in America, this kind of thing happens in Sicily, Stanfa and his son are riding to work on the Schuylkill Expressway, they're being driven to work, 7.45 uh, in the morning, a week weekday. Rush hour traffic, if you're familiar with the Schuylkill, it's four lanes. Cars just going like a cattle chute. A van pulls up next to them. Uh, uh, there, there are two portholes cut on the side with the with, uh, uh, shades. They're pulled away, and here comes two machine guns, and the this, this side of Stanford's car is strafed in the middle of rush hour traffic in, in, in Philadelphia. And uh, Stanford isn't hit, but his son in the backseat is wounded. Uh, those kind of things happen, and that, those kind of things bother the public. There's another guy in the Melrose Diner. He comes out of the diner, gets in his car, and he's shot uh, right outside the diner. You know, and everybody goes to that diner. So those kind of things bother the public. When Sparaccio says you want public apathy, you don't want people concerned, and that way we can go about our business. That's what he's talking about. Who it, did, you, it didn't happen here. It got crazy here. Who are your favorite characters in this book? Well, favorite is int- the interesting characters. I think Joey Molino was a very interesting character. Stanford is interesting in the sense that you know, and, and, I, and I mentioned in the book, in a lot of ways, he comes across as a cross between King Lear and Don Corleone. You know, he's lamenting what's happening, and at the same time, he's trying to plan and plot, and he's, and he's by himself, and he's isolated, and what's happened to me, and I can't trust anybody. Joey Molino's interested because he's got that kind of, epitomizes that swagger and that South Philadelphia corner boy kind of stuff. VZ is interesting because, uh, and I was talking to some folks last night, and I said this. I've covered a lot of this stuff, and I've seen a lot of mob informants testify. I've seen Phil Leonetti, I've seen Nick Caramondi, I saw Tommy DelGiorno, I saw Sammy Gravano up in New York testify against Gotti, I saw little Al Diarco and the acting boss of the Lucchese family testify. Vizi is as good as or better than them all. Uh, He got up on that witness stand for three and a half days, admitted who he was, he was a hitman for the mob, he was a former drug addict, uh, a wife-beater, a thug, uh, stole cars, had been arrested a dozen times, and he sat in that chair, and he charmed the jury. And they lo- by the end, they loved him. Uh, one of the prosecutors said to me, wait till you see this guy. He reminds you of John Belushi. And, and, he, and he did. I mean, he had that kind of that cockeyed grin and that, that like, sideways glance. Can you really believe this? I mean, just, I mean look at what we did here. And, and the jury just kind of ate him up. And, and a part of it was his demeanor. A part of it was I think he really was telling the truth. There was no airs about him. This is, yeah, we did this. Yeah, we did that. He, t- he told the story. And, and, you know, uh, if you want, I'll get into it a little bit. we we'll they have
0: about a minute left.
1: When they committed this murder, and then he, he accidentally set his hand on fire. I mean, he told the story, and, and the jury was, you know, he was making fun of himself, and they were, they were just rolling along with him. So you could, you know, you, you, you pick up those vibes in a courtroom. They were just, they, they bought into everything he was selling and it's one of the reasons they came back and convicted everybody, that and the tapes. There was no way to defend against the tapes. Stanford's lawyers could do nothing. When they play those tapes and Stanford's saying, yeah, this guy's got to go, and then the next day that guy gets shot, how do you defend against that? What else did he mean when he said that, except that that guy's going to get shot? So it was a phenomenal case, and I think, I think the book, if you're interested in that, explains how and why it all came about.
0: This is the cover of the book, The Goodfellow Tapes. George Anastasia, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.